You know, asking, asking the right questions uh, is, is really crucial to living a right life. Asking the right questions. And granted, a lot of questions we ask can be kind of mundane, kind of general life questions. Um, Honey, did you say you want two pounds of hamburger or five? You know, that's kind of a mundane question. You ladies might ask your husband, did you, do you want socks for Christmas or a tie? And, of course, you guys could ask your wife, do, do you want a skill saw or a power drill? Which, which is mundane kind of questions. Our life is full of them. But some questions are far more important. In fact, they can be life-altering will you marry me? Should I take this job? Which college should I attend? Life-altering questions. There's a story in Acts chapter 8. I won't ask you to turn there, but it's a, I think, fairly familiar story. Luke writes this story of, um, of uh, a man from Africa. He was literally from Ethiopia. And he asked the most important question that could ever be asked, uh, the answer to which was the most important answer he could ever get. This man from Ethiopia was a very uh, prestigious person, according to Luke's account there in Acts chapter 8. He was an official in the court of the Ethiopian queen. This guy was traveling in his own chariot. He had uh, been in Jerusalem, so he was a very religious man, because he went up there to worship in the temple. Very prestigious, very wealthy, a man of means, a religious man. But as Luke tells the story in uh, chapter 8 of Acts, he's traveling in this chariot, coming back from Jerusalem, reading from the book of Isaiah. And not only is he a prestigious man, a rich man, a religious man, he's a very confused man because he doesn't have a clue what he's reading or, what he's, or who he's reading about. He's reading a section in Isaiah 53 where it says, He went as a lamb before the slaughter, like a, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he uttered not a word. And he's wondering, who in the world is this? Well, God in His grace and mercy grabbed hold of Philip, the evangelist, and somehow mystically, miraculously connected him with this guy in the chariot going back to Ethiopia asking the question, who is this? And Philip said, do you, do you know who you're talking about, what, what Isaiah is talking about? And he, the Ethiopian official said, how can I know unless someone tells me? And then he asks the question, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Who is this? And the very next verse, it says, Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. 2,000 years later, people still need to ask that most important question. Who, who is this one? The answer to that question is the most important answer one could ever receive. Who is this one? We celebrate Christmas. And the most important question that could be asked is, who is that, that little baby in the manger 
and why did he come? A few months later, as we remember Good Friday, we see the, the picture, the image of the bloodied man dying between two thieves. The question is, who is this one who died? And then three days later, as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, who is this one who rose again? Why does he live again? In the ancient book of Isaiah, answers to those questions are found in the fourth song of Isaiah. We've been studying the book of Isaiah here for months now, and this Advent season we've been focusing on four songs that Isaiah wrote, four poems that he wrote that have this kind of crescendoing effect. Four songs, the songs of Isaiah. Um, this fourth and final song that we're going to look at this morning is without a doubt the most crucial. In fact, the, the other songs build, and this fourth song is a song that has five stanzas with three verses each. Just the, way, just the way Isaiah wrote it shows how important it is. In fact, if you look at your Bibles, as these sections, these stanzas of three verses unfold, they keep getting bigger and bigger. There's more verses or more lines to them. It's kind of like a, like a, um, a symphony, an orchestra that starts out quietly with maybe, maybe an oboe, uh, a flute, and then all of a sudden the more woodwinds are, are added to the sound, and then, then the strings take up their sound. And finally, towards the end, you have this, this brass, this heavy sound as it all crescendos to the end. That's what these four songs of Isaiah are all about. And this fourth song is crucial. Five stanzas, three verses each. Now, it's also written in what's called a, uh, it's a poetic structure called chiasm. It's chiastic structure. In other words, a, a writer and author would, would share certain key points, reach a, a, a kind of a central truth, and then repeat those same key truths or themes in reverse order. So it would look something like this, this fourth song of Isaiah. It starts with this theme of A, then moves to the theme of B, with the focal point on the central theme of C, and then he repeats in reverse order B and A. It's called a chiasm. And so in this fourth song of Isaiah, the first and last themes are the themes of the servant's exaltation, his, the, the glorious high exaltation of the servant. B themes are the themes of being the servant being uh, misunderstood and, and mistreated. But the central theme, all that it crescends, the crescends to, the, the whole focal point of this song is the center section, C, which is the servant's mission, the servant's mission. It begins with exaltation. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah chapter 52, it starts in verse 13. And I, actually, the chapter division should have started there. You know, the chapter divisions and verses, they're not inspired. They were put in later. And the poor guy who put these in, I think, made a mistake. He, he was sleeping on the job. The chapter probably should have begun here at chapter 52, verse 
uh, 13. This first stanza is the stanza that focuses on the exalted and yet unexpected servant. Look how it begins in verse 13. Behold, look, my servant. He's getting our focal point on, on the servant. Look, look, look at him. Behold, consider him. My servant will prosper. Now, some of your translations will say he will act wisely or prudently. And the particular word that is used here have, have both ideas in mind. He will succeed. He will prosper. He will act wisely. In fact, he will act wisely and prudently. Therefore, he will succeed is the concept here, is the idea. So successful. Look at the sermon. Look, behold. Look at how exalted, how successful he is. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, the last part of verse 13. He will be exalted and extolled and greatly lifted up. He will receive honor and glory beyond comprehension. That's the whole idea of those words added together. In fact, those words, high and lifted up, they're only used two other times in the book of Isaiah. Uh, one time it will be used in uh, chapter 57. But the first time those words are combined and used are in Isaiah chapter 6. And if you remember our study of an Isaiah chapter 6, that's the vision that Isaiah saw when he was commissioned, when he was called to be a prophet. Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1 says, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, exalted, extolled, high and lifted up. Those are the words, same words that are used here. And it says, uh, he was sitting on the throne and the train of his robe filled the temple and smoke was filling the temple and he saw the seraphim that said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the exalted God of the universe. And those are the same words that are used here. Look, look, my servant. He will be so successful. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. But then you look at verse 14 and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, this, this must be mistaken. Look at verse 14. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. What's this high and exalted and successful thing I mean, look at him. And so there's this major disconnect from verse 13 to verse 14. He's marred more than any man. I mean, look at his appearance. He's, he, he, he's almost inhuman. Look at him. Behold. How, how did he get this way? And there's a little hint in the next phrase starting in verse 15. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Not people reading this in the original times of Isaiah writing that, when you see that word sprinkled, you can immediately conjure up the, the sacrifices of animals, the sprinkling of blood. He will sprinkle many nations. Is that, is that why he's marred beyond recognition? He's been sacrificed? Some, what? It's confusing. No wonder the Ethiopian eunuch was confused. What is going on here? And yet he comes back, last part of verse 15, kings will shut their mouths on account of him. 
for what had not been told them, they will see and what had, they had not heard. They will come to understand. This exalted servant of the Lord who is somehow marred beyond recognition is going to, through his own blood, is that possible? Sprinkle? Be a sacrificial offering? And yet stand and be recognized in honor before the, the world leaders one day? And the Ethiopian official says, who is this? And Philip the evangelist, starting with this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Jesus. Jesus, who was exalted in glory, stepped from the throne of glory and died and paid the penalty for our sins, only to rise again and stand exalted one day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Now, this first stanza is really a summary stanza for everything that follows for the next four stanzas. So let's move to the second stanza. This exalted, unexpected servant is going to be totally misunderstood. He is the despised servant. And that section begins with two key questions. Verse 1, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed this message? The message I'm about to tell you. And to whom has the arm of the Lord? Now that title, arm of the Lord, it should be capitalized because he's talking about the servant of the Lord. The idea of the arm of the Lord is a picture of strength, of power, of might, the arm of the Lord. But it's talking about a person because in verse 2 it begins with, for he... And the antecedent to that pronoun, he, is the arm of the Lord in the previous passage. The arm of the Lord. And what Isaiah is saying, what I'm about to tell you about the powerful arm of God is unbelievable. And beginning in verse 2 and 3, he packages very quickly, very briefly, the story of Jesus from birth and his life. Look at verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the, the parched, the dry ground. And he has no stately form or majesty that we would look on him or, uh, or appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised. He was forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. There's nothing about this servant, Isaiah is saying. There's nothing about this servant that we would be attracted to him. His birth, his growing up years, inconsequential. In fact, he is, he is a, a little green shoot, a little... A little green grass blade that's coming up out of dry, parched ground. Doesn't have a chance to survive. This tender little shoot up in, in, on dry ground, it's not going to survive. This is a hopeless situation. Born where cattle and oxen eat, 
His parents live in poverty, oppression, in a world that has gone mad, chaotic, and turmoil. A little insignificant green shoot in parched ground. And he goes and says there's nothing about his appearance. Just look at him. Just look at him. There's nothing about this this person that you would be attracted to him. He wasn't a standout human being. He wasn't handsome. He wasn't well built. Nothing impressive in any way about him. In fact, he was despised and forsaken. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And people just, you would look at him and you would just go ahead and just hide your face from him. We did not esteem him. That's an accounting term, by the way. We did not esteem him. Take a look at, look, take, take a look at his beginnings. Take a look at him. And you would conclude, you would, you would add up the figures and you would say, the arm of the Lord? One commentator put it this way, when all that the human eye saw and the human mind apprehended was added up, the result was zero. Lisa, my wife, has a, um, she, she has a problem, sorry, honey, but you, she has a problem. For 41 years of our married life, she does not like to watch movies that have you know, Bible movies about Jesus, you know, the Jesus film and different things. And because she says, they make Jesus so handsome. That, that, that's, not, no, that's not what the Bible says. And isn't it true? You know, Jim Caviezel, and you got this, these handsome studs, you know, and they're, they're Jesus. And they, they walk about like, ooh, wow, wow, that's Jesus. You know, little cute little baby, baby, gentle, sweet, and mild. There was nothing about him that not a person in this room would be attracted to. Not in his appearance, not in his form, not in his manliness, nothing. He was a, a little green shoot in parched ground that would amount to nothing. He was a 10 with the one rubbed out. He was a loser. And everybody knew it. Everybody knew it. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Of course, the answer is... <laughs> and so the opening questions make much sense. Who has believed our message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Arm of the Lord? Are you kidding me? How could anyone so insignificant, so unsightly, so merely human be the arm of the Lord? Who is this? The Ethiopian asked. Who indeed? And so we build and we come to that all-important center stanza, those three verses for five, and six. Who is this one? 
the vicarious suffering servant. Surely our griefs he himself bore, on our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. A most significant truth is now going to be focused upon. In verse 3, we are told he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And now in verse 4, those very same words are used. Whose sorrows and griefs were they? Surely our griefs he himself bore. It was our sorrows that he carried. Not his own. And we begin to get this understanding of this servant as amazing as it may sound, a substitute. Someone who takes the place of us. That his suffering was vicarious. It's a word that means to be in place of. Taking our place. And it was our sorrows, our griefs he bore. He carried. He so fully identified with our sickness and pain and tragedies and disappointments and inhumanities. He embraced it. It became his. He fully identified and immersed himself into humanity. See the use of these first-person pronouns? Surely our griefs he bore our sorrows he carried. We esteemed him stricken and smitten of God, but he was pierced for our, verse 5, transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening for our shalom, well-being, peace, fell upon him. By his scourgings, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We've each of us turned to our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. See, the amazing thing what Isaiah is singing about in this fourth song is this, is this unimaginable truth of the arm of the Lord, the servant of God, so fully identifying himself with humanity that he took on our pain, our sorrows, and our sicknesses of sin and iniquities. These verses harken back to the very opening verses of Isaiah. And those very opening verses of Isaiah, alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's nothing sound in it, only, only bruises and welts and raw wounds, not pressed or bandaged, not, not softened with oil. Spiritual sickness, diseased by sin. And yet, he came. And he took that. He carried our, he bore our griefs. 
He took this upon himself. And by saying that, Isaiah is also referring to another image in the minds of the people who were reading this for the first time, hearing this. In the ancient Jewish liturgy and cultic practices spelled out in Leviticus chapter 16, in the high and holy day of Yom Kippur, the high priest would, would take this goat called the scapegoat, and he would, he would uh, confess the sins of the people as he laid his hands on that goat. And Leviticus chapter 16 says he would pronounce and, and confess these sins. And then verse 22 of Leviticus 16 says, and the goat would die in the place of the people. He bore our, he carried our he suffered for our misfortunes, for our sin and iniquity. He was pierced through. He was crushed. He was chastened. He was scourged for us. The suffering substitute. Verse 6 says, we are all like sheep that have gone astray. And each of us has turned to our own way. I've preached before about sheep. I grew up on a farm. Praise God we didn't raise sheep. But the five Ds of dirty, dumb, diseased, dependent, and defenseless sheep. And you can put your name in there because he says all of us, each of us, like sheep, have turned to our own way. That's the way people are these days, have always been that way. We'll figure this out. We'll solve our problem. We'll get to heaven. We'll figure it out. There's all roads lead there. I'll just live a good life or I'll, I'll make this happen. We're like sheep that have gone astray. We've turned, each of us, to our own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. And now we understand who was behind this. Jehovah God, the Lord, caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. This was His idea, His plan. He took our sins and placed it on the servant. Who is this one? The fourth stanza said, he is the oppressed and he's the humble servant. Look at verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears. He didn't open his mouth. Voluntarily, willingly, he sacrificed himself while he's being beaten and tortured and ridiculed, despised and rejected, he said nothing. He humbled himself. He took it all. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, all we like sheep, and now he is a sheep. So identifying with us, he is the lamb who died, sacrificed himself for us. 
by oppression and judgment. Verse 8, he was taken away. False judgment. Wrongly accused. Last part of verse 8 is very difficult, I think, to interpret. It says, and my translation says, and for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. The NIV says that who can speak of his descendants? And I, I, I think the idea here is that this seemingly insignificant person living this seemingly insignificant life, dying this death of degradation, of humiliation, didn't even leave descendants. He had nothing. He was cut off out of the land of the living with nothing to show for it. Yet he did it, and again there's the substitutionary atonement emphasized for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. He was totally misunderstood. Verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men. He died a criminal's death, sacrificed, crucified between two thieves to be taken off that cross and thrown into the garbage dump where other criminals would be picked apart by the wild animals. But it says with a rich man in his death. It's a wonderful prophecy. We know from the New Testament that a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, stepped forward and claimed the body of the servant and put in, buried that body in the rich tomb of his own family. And so the fourth stanza ends with a dead, humiliated, and buried servant of the Lord. But there's the fifth stanza. Verse 10 says, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. What happened to Jesus Christ was not some unexpected tragedy, not some, something of horror that the people of those days thought, what, we, we thought things would turn out differently. They did what to him? Did you hear the news? They took him, they crucified him, he's dead. It was not some mishap, some tragic mishap of history. Jehovah God was pleased to crush him. It was part of his plan, the fulfillment of his wonderful plan. And Peter, in the early weeks of the, of the New Testament as it was started, as he preached his sermon, he said, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross, the hands of godless men you put into death. It was a predetermined plan. It was in the mind of God. The Lord God Jehovah was pleased to crush him. For us, to put him to death as a guilt offering. Now again, everybody reading this would understand in that Jewish context, again, it would harken back to Leviticus, to the sacrificial systems, and there were sin offerings, but there was also a guilt offering, and that's what's mentioned here. A guilt offering was an offering that was a an offering of reparation, of compensation 
It was an offering that satisfied a judgment that had been made by an offended party. And the one who had caused the offense would bring the guilt offering and make reparations and compensations. What, what did the servant of the Lord had to compensate for? Your sin and mine. Because a holy and righteous God required a payment for sin. The offended party was Jehovah God himself. And folks, go home and look in a mirror because you were the one who offended him. And God was pleased to crush him. And so he offered himself a guilt offering. And now we know the full story of the servant of the Lord. Four songs have been leading up to this fourth and most important song, the song of the servant who became our substitute, who died in our place, the one who satisfied God's righteous demands. But there's more to the story. Last part of verse 10. He will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of Jehovah God will prosper in his hands, and as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied, and by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. And therefore, verse 12, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And we're back to the theme of exaltation. The chiasm is fully complete. Behold the servant, high and lifted up and exalted, though marred beyond recognition, Nothing about him that you would be attracted to. He was despised, spit upon, hated. Dying as a common criminal, bearing our sins and paying for them as a guilt offering. And God the Father raised him from the dead. And he's exalted right now at the right hand of the Father. Because not one of your sins, not one of my sins, was not paid for. He is victorious in his work. Who is this servant of the Lord? Who is he? He's the one who was born in obscurity, raised in poverty and oppression, the one despised and rejected who came and fulfilled his mission and died in your place and mine and raised again triumphant and victorious. Why? So that it could be said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever will believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the story of the servant is the story about a God 
who loves us. And he sent his son into the world to die for us, to offer a free gift to us if we simply believe it to be true. You might be here this morning and maybe you still think that if you are living a good life and and doing the right things and working hard at being a good person and someday God will take your good works on the grand scales of time and and weigh them against your bad works and, and you just hope against hope but you hope that your good works will outweigh your bad works and I've got some really good news. It's news that Isaiah wrote 2,700 years ago that 2,000 years ago an Ethiopian official was scratching his head over wondering who is this? And when Philip the evangelist explained it to him, this is Jesus, the Ethiopian official believed it. And in Acts chapter 8 it says, he was born again. He became a believer in Jesus Christ, heaven bound. And he did nothing but believe it to be true. Because God so loved the world, he gave his son that whoever believes in him, and I want to invite you right now, if you've never put your trust in Christ, then let today be the day. Don't celebrate Christmas without knowing personally the one who came for you and died for you. It's so simple. I'm not going to ask you to get up and walk an aisle and say a prayer and come here and write a check out to the church. I'm not going to, I mean, if you want to, you can, but it's not going to get you into heaven. I'm going to invite you right now to, Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Believe this message of Isaiah 53 and that he died in your place and he rose again for you. And when you accept that to be true, in that moment, your sins are forgiven and you are assured of a home in heaven. You are born again for eternity. That's what the Ethiopian eunuch found. I pray that you will find that today, too, if you haven't. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, as we read this amazing passage, we realize there is no other religion on the face of the earth that offers this. Every other religion, Father, that has ever been created by man is somehow men striving and dying to please some God, some deity. Who has believed this message? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That God, you would send your son, the perfect servant of God, high and holy on that throne of glory of Isaiah chapter 6 into our world, embracing everything that was human, and dying as a substitute, a sacrificial lamb for our sins placed upon him and then rising again in triumph and victory so that you and your love could offer a free gift to anyone who will believe it and accept it. Father, I would ask right now in this room that you would open hearts, any heart that has not yet believed that message that in this moment of time, open their heart to believe it to receive a free gift for your glory. I pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.